Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Wayne Coffey, the author of They Said It Couldn't Be Done, The 69 Mets, New York City, and the Most Astounding Season in Baseball History. He's written many books, longtime writer for the New York Daily News. Mr. Coffey, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you, Evan. Thanks for having me. Now, thanks for doing this. Before we start, I do want to invite our listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. So who wants a distraction from politics? Who wants to talk miracles, a city overcome with joy and the greatest sport in the world, baseball? The reason I love this book, and there are many of them, but it's because it's about my favorite team, the New York Mets. And even though I grew up on stories from my dad of the 69 Miracle Mets, which is what this book is about, and I certainly know the story of the 86 Mets backwards and forwards, I didn't get a full appreciation of how much this team meant, not just to him, to my dad, but to New York and the rest of the world until I read it in book form. So, Wayne, first of all, why is baseball the perfect distraction from politics? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Do we have, do we have like 24 hours or so? To- <laughs> You know, I, I think there's no, um, to me, there there's no sport that sustains tension and drama the way baseball does. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's no clock. I mean, even the, even the uh, ALCS and NLCS games that are going on right now, I don't, um, I was watching them last night and I was just completely riveted by, you know, the, the fact, uh, the, the, the drama, the, um, the, the tension, the, the, the strategy. Isn't it funny how you lose track of time? Really nothing, um, there's really nothing like baseball. And it is certainly a welcome respite because it just seems like, uh, I think we can all agree we're, we're, uh, we're ready for 2020 to be over and hope that 2021 might bring some uh, better, better times where we maybe, maybe even don't even have to wear masks. And on the baseball field, we usually don't have to think about that stuff. But I guess uh, these days you do because just of how much the game has changed in the COVID era. But uh, the Mets, if you say the name today to even uh, even to fans of the team, sometimes you get eye rolls and they go, oh, boy, the New York Mets. I've lived my whole life of getting those eye rolls. Um, what did you get, though, if you said the name of the New York Mets to someone in 1968? The Mets had spent, the Mets, of course, were born in 1962, and they were sort of meant to fill the uh, kind of the aching hearts of New Yorkers who love baseball and who saw the Dodgers and Giants leave for the West Coast in the late 50s. And so the Mets were really the, the stepchild of that heartache. But from 62 through 68, I mean, they were, they were a historically pathetic team. They were a laughingstock, and, and they their first year right out of the shoot, they went 40 and 120. I mean, that, that is hard to do to go 40 and 120. And, uh, <laughs> and they did it and they got only marginally better. And yet they were, they were just beloved. It almost, it almost didn't matter um, what they did, but, you know, so heading into 1969, a, a, a really um, difficult and roiling time in this country and in New York city, um, there was this, uh, the Mets all of a sudden, out of nowhere, 100 to one shots became respectable and became a uh, really almost a season long joyride. And, and it, it really transported people 
to uh, to a different place and a magical place. Part of this book is about baseball's relationship with New York City. So what was happening in the city away from the baseball fields when the 69 season gets underway? Well, there was just tremendous social upheaval. There were... Um, there were uh, labor labor strikes. A, a deeply unpopular mayor who um, was, you know, basically feuding with uh, with anyone and everyone. There were there were there was a teacher strike. There was a sanit um, there, there was a sanitation strike. There were I mean all kinds of of unrest, even by uh, even by New York City standards. And I, I think baseball became a um, in a lot of ways a, um, a respite for for people who were just tired of, uh, you know, of dealing with uh, the battles and the, uh, and the turbulence that was going on, um, going on all around the city. There are two characters that we need to describe. Um, there are certainly characters that are titans that have become titans in Mets history, um, Gil Hodges and Tom Seaver. Who are they and what do they think of the expectations that had been set for the Mets in 1969? Uh, The team starts out 18 and 18. And one of those guys, Tom Seaver, says? Tom Seaver said everyone made a big fuss about it because the Mets, again, the the historically horrible New York Mets, had never been a 500 team so late in a season. It was the middle of May. They were in Cincinnati. And the writers are making this huge deal. We're 18 and 18. Wow, the Mets are actually officially mediocre. You know, let's have a parade. And, and when they went to Seaver, uh, the reporters went to Seaver for a comment. He basically said, uh, you know, we're not here to be mediocre. There's nothing absolutely to celebrate about being 18 and 18. And, and really, that, that kind of put – put Seaver's stamp, the face of the franchise, you know, Tom Terrific, as he was called. And he really, Evan, he was the game changer from the moment that he arrived. Seaver was in 1967. I mean, he was the embodiment of hope. He was, he was, uh, he was boy wonder, you know, with a, with a beautiful wife and a, you know, a handsome face and a, and uh, just dazzling command of uh, of the art of pitching, and so when Seaver stepped on the field for the Mets, I mean that almost conferred on them a legitimacy that they'd never had. And then a couple of years later, in his in a brilliant um, Cy Young season, you know he was the one. He and Jerry Kuzman were the guys who really led the led the charge. Um, and and he was so on the field. Seaver was was a game changer in every possible way and an attitude changer. But to me, the, the ultimate heroic figure in, um, in the 69 season was Gil Hodges. It, it, he was, um, he was a man who, um, who really changed the whole course of the franchise. It did what I think really is the hardest thing to do for a manager in any sport to do, and that is change the culture of a team, and and he did it with the you know with the quiet power and force of his personality. He was a great player with the Brooklyn Dodgers, but more than that, he was an immensely respected man who who related to everyone well. Jackie, uh, Jackie and Rachel Robinson considered Gill and Joan Hodges their uh, some of their closest friends and the people who were the first to accept Jackie when he came to the Dodgers, and. Um, 
I think, you know, it speaks to what kind of man he was. Gil, Gil Hodges was a, was a Hoosier from Indiana and a, and a decorated uh, war hero in World War II. And yet, you know, he came to the Dodgers and settled in Marine Park, Brooklyn, and, and never left. And it was where he wanted to be. He, was a, he had become a son of the city and a man who, uh, who really uh, embodied what the, the, the spirit and the, the, um, the passion and the, and the belief that the 1969 Mets uh, showed every day. Yeah, I do want to say that, you know, of course, I grew up in Shea Stadium and I saw his number, um, his retired number there up on the wall for my entire life. And I didn't appreciate how great of a manager he was until I read your book. I mean, of course, you knew he was great, but I guess part of me thought it was sort of, um, you know, he died young and I thought maybe it was just sort of, well, we're, you know, we're doing him a favor because he was the world championship manager to put his number up on the on the wall like that to retire his number. But until I read your book, I didn't realize, my dad said to me, yeah, it was like he batted 980 that year um, because every string that he pulled just worked out, worked out great. Um, speaking of Shea Stadium, I wanted, I, you know, it is my favorite place in the world and it always will be. And I guess I should say it was my favorite place in the world. So describe if you can, Shea Stadium, what it was like, Never mind just the 60s, but what it was like for its uh, 40 some odd years of existence. Well, it was um, it was a magical place for me, and I I, I have such um, such affection with it. I remember going to games with my grandfather there, and and um, and really, it you know, if you look at it objectively, it was kind of a, a soulless bowl <laughs> of of a ballpark with these little odd blue and orange speckles on the outside not not sure what was going on there but um i mean really when you look at the the latter latter day incarnations of ballparks including city field which i think is just um dazzlingly beautiful park um you know shea had you know it was this perfectly symmetrical bowl you know and 341 down the line 37 371 and 396 410 to straight away center it, you know it didn't um it didn't have a lot of, a lot of charm objectively speaking but boy it's but we're uh, not objective here <laughs> no we're not objective at all i mean it was i was there in game 5 when they won and i ran on the field with all the other lunatics and um you know, got my little piece of Shea Stadium sod, and it was, um, you know, it it, it became, um, it, it was a it was a magical place in a magical time. And what and what happened that summer? I mean, again, it, it's hard to overstate how completely improbable what the Mets did was. I mean, they they had no chance. They had, you know, they were a hundred to one shot, and and. You know, and somehow this belief took hold, and then it unfell. It started building like in midsummer. They had an eleven-game winning streak in late May, early June. Then they had this epic series with the Cubs in July, and then, in and but they were still behind, and the Cubs were you know runaway favorites, um, and you know had this huge lead, and then the Mets just kept on coming and coming and coming, and and uh, and it all it all happened in in Shea Stadium, and it, it, it made for magic on a nightly basis. It's my night, my, the, the nights that I remember there, I mean, I remember a hundred of them, a thousand of them, 
Um, my dad ticket holder since 1985. So I was at hundreds of games there, but um, I remember what it was like in the playoffs in 99 and 2000. And, you know, sitting in our seats in the mezzanine, the, the upper deck was absolutely bouncing on top of us. Um, it was just the greatest. Um, uh, I could go on, we could do a whole podcast on Shea Stadium, but let's talk about some of the other characters uh, on the team here. Uh, who is on this team? How is it made up? What should we know about it in the context of where America is socially in 1969? And, uh, you know, I, I should say the Mets had white and black players. And one of the things you wrote is that Gill creates this clubhouse where all feel welcome. Um, and some of them had not felt welcome growing up in the communities they grew up in. Ed Charles, Don Clendenin, Tommy Agee, they all have horrific stories of things that had happened to them. So talk about what these players experienced as they grew up in some of them in the South um, and how their stories of racism were, were completely common and then how that all is brought together in the 69 Mets. Well, they, you know, it, it's, it's easy to, to talk, you know, in platitudes about how, yeah, we're all a team and we're all together. But the truth is that, you know, there's a, um, a very deeply troubling um, and hideous um, strand of racism that runs all through American history. And, and the, the African-American Mets, Cleon Jones, Tommy Agee, Ed Charles, Don Clendenin among them, were, um, were guys, as you said, men who, you know, who lived with tremendous deprivation and hardship. In fact, Cleon Jones to this day lives in a little community in uh, part of Mobile, Alabama, uh, that is known um, to its residents as Africa Town. And it's called Africa Town because that is where the last slave ship, it made the trip illegally, but the last slave, slave ship to, to come to the United States dropped its illicit human cargo stopped in the, on the west coast of Africa, brought these slaves, and under, you know, under the cover of night, went up the Mobile, uh, Mobile River and dropped them off to work on plantations. And there are ancestors from that, um, from that ship, the Clotilda, who still live in Africatown. And this is, um, I mean, it was, it was a fiercely segregated world that, um, that Cleon Jones and his friend, his friend Tommy Agee, who lived in a nearby community in Mobile, um, and went to, and they lived in, and they, you know, there was, uh, they went to, uh, of course, schools were segregated. There was just, you know, there were haves and have-nots, and there were, um, you know, they were, you know, unwelcome in every, every, every form or fashion you can possibly imagine. And, um, and the, the fact that they, I mean, to, Cleon, to think about it now, Evan, really like Cleon Jones and Tommy Agee shared an outfield um, for the same high school team in, Mo, in Mobile, Alabama. And they ended up being World Series heroes for the Mets in Flushing, Queens. I mean, what, what are the odds of that? And Gil um, created a culture where, uh, even during this tremendously difficult time in America, um, there's a video of Tom Seaver grabbing Cleon Jones around his, you know, with his arm around his head and basically says, this is one of my Bobos right here. Um, mm -hmm. It's a wonderful moment after the, the, the title had been won, but this is the culture that this team had. And they probably, they certainly don't win without that culture that they created. No, he did. And, and again, it, it's, you can, 
you can wish for for this to happen and for players and teammates to 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 respect each other and pull for each other, but it's it's much harder to accomplish. And I dare say in 1969, harder still. But, you know, I think one of the key acquisitions that the, the general manager, Johnny Murphy, another really unsung hero of this story was uh, made was the, uh, the trading deadline. Brought uh, Don Clendenin to the Mets. They needed a, they needed a big right-handed bat. They needed a first baseman, but more than that, he was a he was a huge um, clubhouse presence, a just sort of a galvanizing force. And it didn't matter what what color you were, um, and it and that is what they what they really preached. I mean, when I uh, in talking to guys like um, Clendenin and Tommy Agee have passed, but talking to Cleon Jones and talking to Ed Charles uh, before his passing. Um, a couple of years ago, I mean, they, they made it unmistakably clear that this, and every single person on the team said this, Evan, this never would have happened without Gil Hodges. Hmm. Gil Hodges was, the, he was the glue. He was the one who, who brought it all together, who, who, you know, who basically set this, set this standards and, um, and, and, and made everyone, this is the other thing that I think really managerial geniuses in whatever field have is they make every person feel valuable. And even to the, even to the lowest rookie, to the backup catcher, Duffy Dyer, Duffy Dyer told me there wasn't one day where Gil Hodges didn't come by and say something to him. I mean, he, may, he could go three weeks without playing. Some managers wouldn't even know the guy's name. Gil Hodges would come by and say, you know what, how you doing, Duffy? You know, stay ready. We're going to need you. we got to give Jerry Grody a rest. We're going to – he made – you know, it sounds almost hokey, but he made every single person feel valuable. I mean, one of the, one of the great heroes of that World Series was Al Weiss. I was just going to say his name. <laughs> I was just going to say his baseman, name. The guy who couldn't – Seven couldn't, home runs in, in ten years in baseball, right? That's right. And he, he – <laughs> I mean, and and the guy was, you know, you know, he he might have he might have weighed 150 pounds, um, or or not, you know, they called him the mighty might, and and yet, you know, somehow, and he was the ultimate utility infielder, the spare part, the, you know, a, a guy who, you know, you just, you know, is almost an afterthought for any other team, and yet, you know, Gil would. Gil would plug him in at second base or a shortstop. And they were, this was a time when guys had to leave for military service. Yeah. All, you know, a bunch of the Mets had to you know, Bud Harrelson, Bud Harrelson left. Um, Ken Boswell left. Um, the, um, so when they, when they're off, they'd have to like plug in Al Weiss to, um, you know, to fill the, fill the holes. And boy, was he ever ready. So unreal. Gil had all these guys who felt, who felt important, who felt part of the whole, you know, I, um, the best analogy I, you know, I, I, I can think of is, you know, if you take a, like a, um, the sport of crew and you have people rowing, you know, you've got eight people in a boat and they've all got to be rowing in sync. And if one oar is out of sync, you know, the boat's going to go haywire and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to go well. And, and Hodges again, created this culture where, I mean, all the oars were rowing in sync. All the oars, all 25 of them felt like they were a really critical part of what the team was doing. 
July 9th is a day that um, every July 9th, Howie Rose talks about it. Every Mets broadcaster talks about it. But you mentioned it briefly here. Tom Seaver basically almost throws this perfect game. He gets to, uh, uh, you know, one out in the ninth, and he um, gives up a hit to basically a nobody. And um, Jimmy, he, Jimmy Qualls is not a nobody in the Qualls family. I want you to know that. That's a fair point. That's a fair <laughs> point. And I, and I take that back. They love him very much. Um, and I'm sure his mother was proud of that hit. But, but Seaver almost throws this perfect game. The Mets didn't have a no-hitter for another 50 years. Um, and, you know, Seaver basically defines the regular season with this incredible moment. Uh, that's July 9th. Then the moon landing happens July 20th, 11 days later. Now, of course, they're not related. But are they? Did Mets players ever describe to you being inspired by that moment to play better baseball? Did landing on the moon make miracles more palatable here on Earth? Well, I don't know if it made it more palatable, but I, and here's the, you know, the joke at the time was, you know, people would say, well, the man will land on the moon before the Mets win the pennant. And, you know, they both happened, won the World Series, I should say, and they both happened in the same year. So how about that? Maybe the, Maybe there's some kind of cosmic connection there, but um, it was that July 9th was in, was indeed. I, mean, I can remember where I was standing. I mean, to the square inch hmm. when that game was going on, and when Jimmy Qualls, damn him, with it, uh, with one out in the ninth inning. You, you were there. No, I wasn't there, but I was yeah. watching on TV. Okay. So, but I can remember I was at my na- next door neighbor's house. We were watching the game, and he hit a clean single to left center. There was no shot. There was no, no controversy. It was, a, it was a clean hit. You know, it was like, as Howie Rose described, it was like the, you know, air, 57,000 people were in the, in the ballpark, and, and this hush, this groan, like this air just came rushing out of the biggest balloon you could ever see, and it was just the most deflating wretched letdown that, that just, I mean, it just felt like it was enveloping the whole earth and, and Seaver standing on the mound with his hand on his hip. Perfection was in his grasp and he came up two batters short, but in that moment, and then people start cheering for Seaver. And so the moon landing. So, so do the Mets start to believe because of this thing, or is it just two things, and I'm I'm being too much here in in the divine intervention? Well, I don't think I don't think that when they saw the men land on the moon, the Mets started thinking, "Hey, we really can do this." But it was certainly a a huge symbolic import to the country. And what's what's hilarious to me, Evan, is that the day that when man Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, the Mets were stuck in Montreal because they had plane trouble. So the Mets couldn't get out of Montreal and man landed on the moon. So I don't know. You tell me. Um, right. um, talk about the black cat. That's another big moment here. Uh, the quote you have in the book um, is, I saw the black cat come out of the stands and I knew we were in trouble. So who says that? Why do they say that? And, and how does this black cat become part of Mets lore as the regular season is winding down? Yeah, so the Black Cat is in, in, in the Mets had this epic series with the Cubs, and it was really a showdown for first place in early, early September. And the and the Cubs by this point are, I mean, they're on the run. I mean, the Met the Mets were um, at the time right before Woods. It's another thing that happened this summer. Woodstock, 
Right. I mean, that, I mean, this is crazy. Like when the Mets were um, just as Woodstock was beginning in mid-August and the Mets were, um, you know, just hopelessly behind, I think 13, got to be 13, 13 and a half games behind. And they had, they had, you know, they looked, um, they looked like they were done and everyone thought they were done. And then they finished the season going 38 and 11. I mean, that's an, talk about finishing strong. And so anyway, so the Mets are closing in on the Cubs. They're getting closer and closer and closer. And, and the Cubs come to Shea for the, the biggest series in the history of the Mets franchise. And, um, and early on in one, in, in one of the games, like this black, this black cat runs out on the field and goes right in front of the, of the Cubs dugout, like having a stare down with Leo DeRocher, the Cubs manager. You know, I mean, you can't make this up. And people, people later, you know, they were all just like, you know, we're awash in conspiracy theories today. Some people said that, you know, there was a grant, you know, the Mets like staged this, they had a groundskeeper release the, the <laughs> and, you know, this, I talked to everyone who basically who's still alive. This was not staged. There were a lot of stray cats in Chase Stadium for the best possible reason. There were a lot of rodents in Chase Stadium. So, you know, they're, uh, you know, they knew they could, you know, they could get some meals. Um, so, so the, in this series with the Cub, the, you know, the black, the black cat comes out. And if, I mean, if that was not the, uh, you know, kind of the iconic symbol of, um, you know, of the miracle that was unfolding and, Just, you know, the fact that the Cubs had a, um, Cubs had a, had a curse on them, so to say, um, you know, this was confirmation of that. So, it, one thing. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can't you can't make this stuff up. It, it just it looked like just when uh, I mean, the other thing, I mean, there was one game after another um, that it, it was like a, a, the se a season long game of uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not, you know, like you just could not believe the Mets in early September and against the Pirates won a doubleheader. Um, both both games by the score of one nothing. Both both runs driven in by the starting pitcher. That's never happened in the history of baseball. I mean, and the Mets were they were a, they were a bad offensive team by any measure. I mean, what they did was they caught the ball and they had incredible pitching, and um, and you know they were strong up the middle with uh, with Jerry Grody, Bud Harrelson, and Ag, and they they just they made they made no mistakes. So. Um, but they really couldn't hit worth much of a lick. So they'd sweep this uh, doubleheader one nothing, And then in maybe the craziest game of all, they go in, uh, in St. Louis and they play, they face Steve Carlton, one of the, the great pitchers of his day. And Carlton sets a major league record, strikes out 19 Mets. And the Mets win 4-2 to two on two two-run homers by Ron Swoboda. So another Hall of Famer. The other two times, Swoboda struck out. And right. after the game, Swoboda said, he, he got me twice, I got him twice. So, <laughs> I mean, um, but it's unbelievable. Before we talk about the World Series, let's just, just real quick, they play the Braves in the, in the NLCS, um, and we don't have to go through each game or anything like that. But, but to talk about how Vietnam is looming during this and how that relates to Tom Seaver. Oh, yeah. Well, there were um, the anti-war... Uh, protests were 
growing all summer. And by, um, and by October of 1969, there was, in fact, on the day, um, the anniversary is in, um, a, a actually, it's tomorrow of the, um, mm -hmm. the game where um, there was a, a, a nationwide moratorium against the Vietnam War. And there were people, um, protesters who were outside Shea Stadium handing out leaflets and Seaver had gone on record, even though Seaver was a former Marine, um, you know, he didn't think that he didn't think the war was a good idea. And he was on record as being against it. And, and the protesters, the supporters of the anti-war movement were, were all over this. And uh, so Seaver's going out to pitch game four of the World Series. And um, unbeknownst to him, his... Um, his picture is on the cover of a leaflet being handed out outside Chase Stadium without his permission. You know, basically saying, uh, Tom, you know, Tom Terrific thinks the war is a bad idea. You know, let's get out of Vietnam. And uh, so that, you know, that backtrack, he wasn't happy about, about that, but he, um, you know, he went out and, uh, and won the one World Series game of his um, of his Hall of Fame career, and I, I should mention, I should have said it earlier, Evan. I mean, you know, Tom Seaver, the you know the the Nets, the Mets' proverbial knight in shining armor, just you know just recently passed. Yeah, R.I.P. Without a doubt. Way too young, and um, you know, in fact, it's it's been a it's been a brutal autumn for uh, for Hall of Fame ball players from Bob, you know, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, now Joe Morgan, Tom Seaver, um, Whitey Ford. Just, Whitey Ford. I mean, I, I, these are, these were the, the baseball icons of my childhood. And it, you know, in the span of weeks, they've all, uh, they've all passed. Yeah. My dad's feeling the same way. Um, so they go and play the mighty Orioles here in the world series. Um, they beat the Braves. They beat, they beat Hank Aaron and the Braves. Now they got to beat uh, the Robinsons and the Orioles. Um, after the world series is over, Seaver says, they thought they were going to run us right off the field. Um, the only way this happens is with several miracle plays. There are two by AG, one by Swoboda, um, and you already mentioned some of the big hits that were gotten by guys who uh, nobody had, uh, nobody may, may have heard of since then unless you're a huge Mets fan. But talk about these miracle plays that happen, uh, the two by AG and one by Swoboda. Yeah, I mean, it, AG's plays, I mean, you, they were – um they both came in um in game three and they had um so the mets lost you know they lost the first game they, just to backtrack for a second i mean the orioles were just were an overwhelming favorite they had one of the greatest really widely considered one of the one of the greatest teams ever assembled they, they were um they were just um they were just phenomenal you know i remember um um Earl Weaver said beforehand the Mets had won uh, won a hundred games, and uh, everyone, when Earl Weaver was asked about um, you know about the miracle Mets and whether you know he thought like God was on the Mets side, well you know he said something to the effect that well you know you know God must like the Orioles too because we won 108 games, and um, they were I mean they had. They have, you know, the Robinsons, uh, Frank, Frank and Brooks, both Hall of Famers. They had a, a former Met who was an all-star center fielder in Paul Blair. They had Boog Powell at first. They had 
one of the great shortstops in the game, Mark Belanger, Davey Johnson, the future, the future med manager um, at second base. I mean, they had, um, they had stars all over the place in one of the greatest rotations in the game. So Tom Seaver starts game one in Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And, um, and the Orioles, I should add, Evan, were so – they were so confident. They actually had a parade in downtown Baltimore before the series started. And the Mets were not happy about that. You're not, you're not supposed to have a parade before the World Series starts. Someone asked Frank Robinson, well, uh, beforehand, uh, after the Orioles won their playoff series, well, what have, you know, what about how long is the World Series going to last? And he said, well, the, the birds of Baltimore haven't decided yet. It may be four games, it may be five games, but, you know, we'll let you know how long it's going to go. I mean, they were, they were big time cocky. And, you know, and if you, and if you looked at, there were one of my favorite anecdotes, uh, Evan, of this whole season with Gil Hodges Jr., Gil's son, who was a, um, a high school player in Brooklyn. I mean, talk about a dream summer. I mean, he's like in the, in the dugout, in the clubhouse with the Mets the whole season as I think a 17-year-old kid. And he's sitting in his father's office before, the World's, before game one of the World Series, and he's looking at the stats of the Mets – and the Orioles, and he's looking at, the, you know, these incredible numbers. I mean, the you know, the Oriole the Oriole lineup, and the and and the Mets, um, and the Mets, not very impressive lineup. And you know, he's going player by player, and he and he says to him, "Hey, Dad, can I ask you a question?" And Gil Senior says, "Sure." And he says, "How the hell are you even on the field with the same field with these guys?" And his father, Gil, who was a very powerful, imposing guy, I mean, whose physical presence was had the, you know, the Popeye forearms and just this, this presence, he gets slowly up from his desk and he goes over and closes his office door and he, and he says to his son, I don't ever want to hear you say anything like that again. He said, all that matters is there's a room full of guys out there who believe that they can win this World Series. And that's what I care about, not a bunch of stats on a page. And, uh, you know, maybe the analytics crowd uh, needs to, you know, hmm. kind of channel a little Gil Hodges there. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm also not joking in a way that there's so, you know, we're so fond these days of, of, of parsing numbers and carving things up into a million different ways. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's ultimately a game played by human beings. And, and you, can't, you can't quantify what belief and confidence means. And, and the Mets had tremendous faith in themselves. And they didn't care about their numbers. They didn't care that everyone thought they were overmatched. And that all started with the manager. Uh, so the two miracle plays. Yeah, so the two miracle uh, plays. Three miracle plays, but go they, ahead. Yeah. Um, the Mets lose game one with Tom Seaver on the mound. So right now, I mean, everyone's thinking, oh boy, you know, Tom's, even Tom Seaver lost and gave up a home run in the first at-bat to Don Buford. But then in maybe, you know, maybe as an important game as the Mets have ever had, Jerry Kuzman pitches a brilliant game two in Baltimore. So this, the series switches to Shea Stadium in game three. And it was there that Tommy Agee probably single-handed, incredible running catch in left center. And then another one in right center, both, you know, both diving, sprawling, catching the ball in the webbing of his glove. And, 
I mean, he was a, he was a Gold Glove center fielder, but still, these considering the circumstances, they're two of the of absolutely greatest catches in World Series history. Until one game later, when Ron Swoboda, <laughs> who was not known who was not known for his glove, the Mets will tell you, Evan, that nobody in the beginning of the year he was such, Swoboda was such a liability that Hodges would always pull him out of games late in games and replace him with Rod Gasper. Uh, for defensive purposes, but nobody worked harder on his defense than Swoboda that year. He was out there early every day taking fly balls by the hundreds. And by the end of the year, he was, he was getting the whole game. In, um, in game four, uh, you know, at a huge moment, he, uh, Brooks Robinson hits a line drive into right center Swoboda's the right fielder, Agee's the center fielder. And, you know, it looks, it looks for sure that uh, the floodgates are about to open. And Swoboda just makes a headlong dive that was probably imprudent. He would even say, you know, I'm not even sure why I went for it. It would have been probably better to play it safe, keep the ball in front of you, because if, if it goes by him, Brooks Robinson's not a fast runner, but, I mean, he at least winds up on third. And he makes his full-out sprawl. And, I mean, I, I think as great as Agee's catches were, I think Swoboda's catch was even better. And, and without all of those things, this, this series, you know, has a completely different result. And we have to talk about game five, too. And I know we're uh, coming up against your time limit here, but we have to talk about the shoe polish play and how that impacts, you know, the, the Mets are up 3-1 here thanks to these miracle plays. Frank Robinson gets hit the inning before, and then – for whatever reason, another one of these divine moments, uh, there appears to be this wild pitch, but, uh, uh, but he starts walking to first base. Um, I guess it was AG, right? It starts, it was Cleon. Cleon starts walking to first base and Gil comes walking out with the baseball and goes, Hey, I don't know what to tell you, but I got some shoe polish here on this baseball. (laughs) Explain explain how that happens. So Cleon, um, there was a, um, a wild pitch, um, uh, Dave McNally, I believe it was, and he had um, it bounces in the in it looks to bounce in the dirt, but Cleon starts taking off for first base because it hit him in the foot, and the ump says, "No, that didn't hit you. You know, you're you know you're still up at bat." And then, you know, and Cleon Jones is standing there like this. This ball hit me, and this was you know there was not um, instant review, you know, instant replay video review, of course. Um, Nothing. And the next, you know, the next thing you know, here comes Gil Hodge. He's had his med jacket on and he had his hands in his pocket. And here comes Jill, Gil Hodges coming up the dugout steps and he's holding a ball in his hand. And he just walks slowly <laughs> up to the home plate umpire and, and he has the ball. And, and I have to tell you that um, the, here's the backdrop on this. Gil Hodges was never um, in his entire career – uh, as a Brooklyn Dodger, he was never ejected from a game. He was the most, you know, respected, quiet. Even keel. players yeah. loved him. I mean, the guy just, he just oozed credibility. I mean, he, you know, he was, he was like, you know, a son from the heartland who could, you know, who would never lie. You just always could trust Gil Hodges to say and do the right thing. So, I mean, he, you know, the, he had this weight, this force of his, you know, of his character that almost poured out of him. So he shows up at home plate with his ball and he, he shows it to the ump and he said, 
you see this black smudge on here? That's Shupal. That's from Cleon's plea. This ball hit him on the foot. Cleon will tell you. Cleon's right there saying, yeah, this ball hit me. This ball hit me. And um, the umpire looks at it, and then he points Cleon Jones to first base. And Earl Weaver, who had become – who was thrown out of the previous game, and he was – he was the anti-Gil Hodges. The Orioles manager was this little pepper pot who was just this profane, I mean, a great baseball man, but, um, you know, just a raging nut at times. And he comes, uh, he comes racing out of the dugout. You know, and he put his hat, you know, flipped his hat back and basically started screaming and yelling at the top of the inning. Frank Robinson did get hit by a pitch by Jerry Kuzman that they said it didn't hit him. And Kuzman tells a story about seeing Frank Robinson in the dugout with his pants open, getting treatment on the wound. And Kuzman's on the mound, like, just laughing because they didn't give him the first base, even though Kuzman hit him with an inside fastball. And then, so the bottom of the inning, now the Mets get the call, and Earl Weaver goes nuts, and Cleon Jones gets first, uh, he gets first base, and it ends up being, you know, playing a huge part in, um, in the outcome of the game and they have um but gillard said hey rub a little bit of just give me do me a favor rub this on your shoe for a second and i'll walk it out right well so gill never um years later i mean no one said anything but um there were kuzman said he was sitting on the bench near hodges and when the ball rolled in the dugout it came near kuzman and Kuzman said that he took the ball and rubbed it against his shoe and then handed it to Hodges. Unbelievable. Now, there are, you know, other Mets who were in the dugout said they never saw that. And, and Kuzman, who's sort of like a, a good time guy who, you know, who loves a good story, um, you know, might be, uh, might be embellishing it for dramatic effect, but you know, all we know years later is that there was a black smudge on that ball and Cleon Jones ended up on first base. So, so, uh, the, uh, uh, they're, they're there, they're, they're an out away. And Lindsay Nelson says, if they get one more out here, you're going to see one of the gosh darndest sights you've ever seen in sports. <laughs> There's this fly ball to left. Cleon taps his glove makes the easy catch. The fans overtake the field. You're apparently one of them who went running out there. Um, why was that a totally appropriate way for the Mets to celebrate this miracle world series, the fans rushing the world, the, the field? Well, it, you know, it had happened. It happened before when the Mets clinched, it happened again when they beat the Braves and these poor Shea stadium uh, groundskeepers. I mean, they had to rebuild the field three times. It's um, because it just got, you know, when Met fans went nuts, I mean, there was a degree of his hysteria and jubilation like the, no one had ever seen before. So when and, – um, and the last hitter for the Orioles ended up – it was, fittingly enough, in Met, Met history was Davey Johnson, the second baseman and manager of the 86 Mets. He hits a fly ball to pretty deep left. Um, Cleon gets it, goes down to one knee, and, you know, and before – Practically before he could close his glove around the ball, I mean, the, uh, the barbarians are storming the gates. And I was sitting on the first base side, maybe 15 or 20 rows back with my grandfather. 
And, and I was sort of this cautious suburban kid. I'd never think about running on a field, but you know what? There was a, there was a tidal wave. And I remember saying, Gramps, I'm going to do this. And, you know, and he just said, you know, be careful, son. And, uh, you know, I went over, all I wanted to do was like get a little piece of, um, of Shea stadium sod for the backyard. But it, it was so crazy, Evan, that they're one of the bat boys who was a, um, a high school kid from Queens told me that someone actually tried to rip the, a fan tried to rip the uniform off his back. The bat boy, they pulled the, um, they put, they got the rubber and home plate out of the, I mean, you can't do that without construction. To right. It. <laughs> right. A hammer and nail. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, I know, you know, they didn't have like, you know, security checks, but someone either must've bought a, uh, you know, a shovel or a, you know, a pickaxe or something to the ballpark that day. But I mean, it was to say the the field was like overrun and shredded. I mean, it looked, it looked like the fall of mankind um, after about 10 minutes. So has, I mean, it was, and I did get my, get my little two inch square piece of sod and I brought it back. I lived in Huntington, Long Island at the time. I brought it back, put it in the backyard, planted it, fertilized it, watered it. We don't live there anymore. so. Someone's got a piece of uh, Shea Stadium sod in their backyard. Has there been a baseball miracle since the 69 Mets? Uh, I'll give you one that I thought of. Maybe Cal Ripken breaking Gehrig's record. Is that a miracle? Um, has there been one like that since, since 69? Well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, Red Sox fans would argue, you know, coming back from 3-0 against the Yankees. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, that was certainly epic, you know, and they hadn't, they hadn't won since, you know, Babe Ruth was a Red Sox. And then, you know, Cub fans would have their argument for. But against the context of the times, the, you know, the, um, with, the, with the Vietnam War, with society seemingly coming apart at the seams, our, our way of life seemingly being challenged and, um, and turned upside down, for against that backdrop and against a team that had never done anything but lose, but that, that had lost uh, more games from between 62 and 68 than any, any team in, uh, in history to suddenly go from worst to first. I mean, I don't think they'll, we'll ever see anything like it ever again. Uh, I do want to say a word about your other books. You wrote a book about the 1980 miracle on ice team. Um, why do you like miracles so much? That book, the boys of winter, I mean, it actually, really, Evan, when you think about it, it's a pretty similar narrative. In 1980, I mean, the, U the U.S. hockey team was going up against the greatest hockey team ever assembled. Just a, a constellation of, of all-stars, of, you know, the great, some of, many of the greatest players in the history of the sport. And the U.S. team was mostly a bunch of college kids who had played the, Russia, played the Soviet team two weeks before the Olympics began and lost 10-3 to in Madison Square Garden. I mean, they had... They had no shot. The Mets almost looked like a favorite compared to those guys. And so you like miracles they had because a coach and they um, and they believed and they sort of got on a roll and everything everything went their way and it's nice to write about happy events. Wayne Coffey, author of They Said It Couldn't Be Done: The '69 Mets, New York City, and the Most Astounding Season in Baseball History. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Evan. 
Well, this was the best possible distraction we could ever have from politics. So certainly check out uh, that book and his others on the Miracle on Ice team. Also the basketball team at Gallaudet University. He's active on Twitter at WR underscore coffee and WayneCoffeeAuthor.com. I also want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to Patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.